Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Today, I have Jonathan Dio with us, and welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Tyler. I'm glad to be here. Of course. Grateful to have you on. Um, so if you want to kick us off, uh, just tell us a little bit more about you and what you do. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, I'm a financial planner. I've been doing it for about 25 years. Uh, and over that length of that length of time, I've sort of developed uh, loyalties to certain kinds of things that actually provide uh, better long-term returns or better long-term outcomes for families. Uh, and my loyalties have, have grown to include two core things, and that's uh, financial education and financial planning. And I, I, my sense basically is that if you do the financial education right and you, and you do the financial planning right, uh, then the rest is kind of luck. Uh, the rest is kind of based on luck. And so sometimes you'll be ahead, sometimes you'll be behind, uh, but if you stick with your plan, you get there. And the challenge is one more about, and this is why I wrote the book, Mindful Money, the challenge is more about uh, our reactions to what's going on in the world, which creates you know, an openness for massive problems because in our media-centered or social media-centered space, there's always something to react to. So really the challenge becomes, how do I not react? Um, once, you have a, once you're educated, once you have a plan, the entire rest of your life is about how do I not react to the current crazy? Mm, okay, so it's a funny place to start, but I wanna start here, I'll give you a little backstory. So I, have you heard of that app, TikTok? Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, how could you not have heard of it? <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, good point. Oh yeah, with everything with uh, the news and stuff, good point. Um, so basically there's this guy on, I think his handle is like the layman investor. And one of the things I kept seeing him like on my feed and it finally like beat into my head and then it actually got me to, and this is like, I don't know, a guy, he might know nothing about financial things, I don't even know. but. He kept saying that to read this book called um, The Little, what is it, Com Little Book of Common Sense Investing, I think it was called. It's like a little red book. And basically what it showed is that if you just invest in um, like index funds, like S&P 500 index funds, and I could be totally butchering the names of some of these things. I'm not well versed in it quite yet. But um, it, it like has, um, over the last hundred years, it's outperformed you know, basically trying to, um, and, and this is speaking on kind of what you said, trying to kind of guess the market or, or invest in separate companies. So I guess the question is like, what's your, what's your take on that? Have you seen something like that? Or is every strategy kind of different and tailored to the, to the person? Yeah. It, I mean, the, the reality is we could have, uh, we could have arguments all day long about whether the active, the active method of investing, meaning trying to figure out where a, where a security is mispriced and guessing where the pricing will go into the future. So, so buy this, sell that, buy this, sell that, time the market, you know, uh, uh, that kind of thing versus passive investing, which is what, which is what the little book talks about. Um, and, and there are many, many, many people that talk about it. Uh, passive investing is definitely uh, 90%. You'll be, you'll be 90% successful. You may not, you may not carve off the, the last 10%, but the question is what's enough. Uh, and yeah. I, I, I'm fully behind the concept of passive investing, but once you say passive investing, 
that only that only gets that only opens like one you know 50 other doors of decisions you have to make right so it, it's only one thing okay am i going to go active or passive well i'm going to go passive well okay great now you're going to go passive how much us how much international how much emerging markets how much fixed income how much equity right do i go big companies or little companies do i go do i go big companies in the us and little companies in emerging markets or vice versa you know so it's not enough to just say passive you still have to build a portfolio you still have to manage that portfolio over time i think I think if you build a passive portfolio and manage it over time, according to your plan, in other words, uh, um, your plan should largely determine how much risk and how much how much risk you should take, how much return you need. Because, right, what, what's enough? Well, what are my milestones? What's the retirement income I need? How much do I want to leave for my kids or my community? Once you answer those three questions, you know what you need. Now you know what you need to save based on you know, some sort of assumed return. Well, if you assume a 10% return, that's a lot of equity exposure or a lot of aggressive real estate exposure or a lot of aggressive investing exposure. If you assume a 4% return, then you're, it's much, your height, your probability of getting there is so much easier, so much better, so much higher. So it's active passive is kind of where it starts and where a lot of the arguments occur. But if you choose yeah. passive, then what? And that's the challenge really. And that's why we say, educate, educate, educate plan, plan, plan. And then, you know, I'll recommend passive. I'll, rec I'll re recommend a certain kind of passive, but uh, it doesn't get you all the way there. Totally. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess it, it does kind of depend on the person's like emotional resistance or I don't know what the right word is, but like for me, you know, I got in there with like the Bitcoin stuff and all that. I think Bitcoin is like 600 bucks when I started to dabble in that world. And what I realized is, I, you know, I made some money on it, but what happened is I started getting so sucked in to just watching, like, I think it's called, it's been so long, GDAX, I think is what the thing was called. And I would just watch the numbers go up and down. And then I, it like for it, this was for like three, four months. And then it hit me. I was like, oh my God, like I'm literally just staring at this screen and I've like forgotten about my main business. <laughs> and then... <laughs> And like, it was crazy. And I, I literally, you know, it was like a three or four month hypnosis. And then I just, it hit me that for the person I am, at least currently, and you know, we can all change, but I, I'm way more of a passive. So that's why that like index fund thing was really um, intriguing to me. Cause I would, because basically the guy was saying like, you know, look, the S and P 500, it's going to go up and down in the short term, but overall in the learn long term, the average is like eight to 10% or something over like 10 years or something like that. So like, I, I was just like, okay, cool. I'll just put a monthly amount in there. I won't even look at it. And, you know, I won't over leverage myself, but I'll put enough that I'm like, you know, still comfortable. And if, if something crazy happens and I lose it all, like I'll still be okay. And that for me just mentally is just way more stabilizing. I'll say. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, it's, there's, there's sort of three different, there's three different themes there that are important to pull out. Right. So the, the, the meant the, the cognitive and emotional biases that occur because you have a single holding in, in this case, Bitcoin, I mean, it, it could be, you know, Microsoft, it could be Apple, it could be Netflix, whatever that single holding is um, that, you know, it, it could be, it could be incredible return or it could be a, comp you know, incredible complete loss, right. A single holding gives you no uh, ability to project a probable future return. The benefit of having, and again, this is active or passive, the benefit of having 
500 or 3,000 securities that you're holding um, in, a, in a portfolio is you're not reliant upon the positive or the negative from any one security anymore. And the fewer you hold, the higher the probability either you, you know, incredibly outperform or incredibly underperform. And that's the difference between expected returns and unexpected returns. So it's, you know, that, that first part of that is, is getting diversified gives you a little bit of stability. Uh, uh, a second part of that, that, you know, plays in really, really heavily is, you know, when you go to the S and P or, you know, do I, do I get some global uh, investments in there? Uh, you, you add a whole nother level of diversification. So if you stick with the S and P right now, what you're buying is you're buying the thing that has, has outperformed so many other things because it includes to a, to a great extent, the Apples, the Netflix, the Googles, the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world, right? So that it includes those five holdings in a, in a huge percentage. So when those five holdings actually run into problems, which they will eventually, there's no question about it. There is no precedence for, you know, five companies staying on the top of the heap for decades. That just doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, so when they, run into, when they run into trouble, if you're focused on the S&P and not more broadly diversified, then you, you enjoy the run up, but you're also going to enjoy the run down, right? So it's the more diversification you can add, the better off you're going to be. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and then, you know, I guess to talk about what's going on right now in the world with coronavirus, like what are your, and I guess everybody's situation is different, right? Like if you're a restaurant owner, I can't, I, I feel so bad for all the restaurant owners, but like, what's your, what's your take on what people should be doing right now with the economic slowdown and everything with the coronavirus? That's a, I mean, it's, it's a great question. Um, so there's two, there's two really big parts of this. The one, the one part is, you know, what do you do with your life if you've lost a job or if you're the company, you're, you know, if you're a company founder and the company's having is struggling, what do you do? Um, and, and I don't, you know, that's harder for me to answer. I don't know that I have a good answer for that. I think that's where, um, and this may be, I don't want to throw a political football out there, but, but it, it may be something, you know, if we, if our national house is in order going into something like a pandemic, then this is precisely the use of those additional federal funds to, 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 to boost and support things that are just going to go under. And there's a, there's a massive number of people right now that are suffering that, that I, I don't want to say needlessly because that becomes, that becomes political, but there really, there really should be some kind of a backstop for those people at this point. In my, in my opinion, it's my opinion. Um, so that's one part of it is what do you do in those circumstances? Most of my clients um, are blessed by, you know, lives that have uh, produced revenues and incomes and have allowed them to save and invest and they're sitting on net worth. And, and if you look at markets, they've, they've more than fully recovered from what happened in February, March of this year. Um, and so the lesson that we should learn as investors is that whether it's COVID or the great recession or, you know, the dot-com boom before that, or the nifty 50 or the oil boom or, you know, Bitcoin or, you know, the presidential elections or, you know, historically a presidential assassination or whatever it is that sh those momentary things become things that just pass. They, they seem in that moment to be, Oh my God, it's the end of the world. I don't know if you remember the headlines of 2008, but it was, it was, 
you know, capitalism is over. Capitalism had a great run. It's, it's never going to work again. That was 2008. Um, and we are what three X, four X, you know, markets are, have exploded higher for the last decade. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then we get COVID and markets go down, you know, and we, we saw the sharpest decline in market history followed immediately by the sharpest recovery in market history. Right? So what do you do with that? Well, you should sit on your hands. The lesson should be do less. Don't try to outguess this thing. No one can predict the future. You can plan. You can do what you're doing, right? Save a little bit every month. When you have a little bit extra, save a little bit more. When you need a little bit, take a little bit out, you know, but it's follow the plan. That's all you can do. Yeah. So let's, um, because I think this will be a perfect way to do this. So let's let's jump over to the because i actually just read this i didn't realize this before somehow i skimmed over this when i was like doing some research on you but um so you're a longtime buddhist and you practice meditation for 25 years so i want to i want to touch on that side of you and then kind of bring both um together because i kind of think that's kind of what your book mindful money kind of kind of does in a sense so um, first off, I'll start, you, you probably heard of him. I'm a huge fan of Alan Watts. I don't know if you know who that is, but. Um, of course I know who that is. <laughs> probably. Cool. Okay, I, I figured. Um, but that's how I kind of got introduced. He was like my introduction, I guess, to all the different types of things like Buddhism um, and different religions and just kind of, he was so open-minded, I feel, to all of them. And, and his voice, you know, it, it, it's kind of soothing to the ear, so he's easy to listen to. Um, but so ha- first, what were you, I guess, so 25 years before that, I guess, to, I'm trying to word this right, but like, what were you like that then led you to like start practicing meditation? Oh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, great, it's a great question. So I, I uh, growing up, you know, we didn't have any money growing up. So I, I created probably at that time I was eight or nine years old. I created a fascination with um, financial success because I, I wanted things that my friends had and I couldn't have. I wanted vacations that I couldn't go on. I wanted to have, you know, functional vehicles. Like it, we, it was, it was rough growing up. Um, like for, I think 13 years, neither of my parents had a, had a real income. So uh, I wanted, and I didn't have. And so I created this fascination with finance and with money generally. Uh, and so that's, and, you know, I got to college, uh, I started little businesses in, in, in high school and I got to college and I worked all the time, saved money all the time. I got to college and I was studying finance, but I had studied it so much in high school that it bored me to tears. And so I was like, okay, I gotta, I gotta do something else. And I tried, uh, literature for a while. I ended up on philosophy and I had a couple professors, just wonderful people, um, uh, Marvin Shaw and Dr. Jim Allard. And, and they said, Hey, Jonathan, you obviously love this stuff and you think deeply about it. We, we think you should go on to grad school. And so, so they, they said, Hey, go to grad school. I looked at a bunch of schools and that's what brought me to California in the Institute of Buddhist studies. Uh, and I, and I went to the Institute of Buddhist studies for three years. And in that process, I realized that for me, the academic study of religion is while you know, really interesting and really fun. I really dug it, had a great time, fantastic experience. It's not about the academic study for me. It's about the practice. It's about sitting and staring at a wall, you know, paying attention to my own thoughts, my own feelings, what's going on, paying attention to my reactions to things, paying attention to what moves me to think certain things. You know, what is it about today that dredges up stuff about yesterday or makes me worry about things about tomorrow? 
Um, it's very just interesting to get to know how your own brain works a little bit. And that's what, that's what meditation does. But okay, so I'm not quite finished with a master's. My intention was to get a PhD and become an academic. I've completely changed the route. I'm not going to do that now. Um, uh, I, I'm still coming from this background of not having a lot of money and I'm still fascinated with personal finance. What do I do? And uh, I said, okay, let me, let me think about this. Um, you know, I've got a degree in philosophy. I'm a dropout in a, in a Buddhist program. Um, how about I become a broker? And so I, I did that. I, I went to Dean Witter and they, you know, they would hire literally anybody. Uh, and then for five years, I worked at seven different firms. Three were mergers and three were, you know, changes I made and learned that there's no way you can provide objective advice from that world to clients. You know, you can't talk about reduce cost, reduce, you know, you can't talk about that because it's really all about, you know, boosting commission and revenue for the firm. Uh, and there's all kinds of other reasons, but so then I had the beginning of a meditation practice and the beginning of a financial, financial practice. This is about 2000 or sorry, 1996. Uh, and, 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 and that sets me off and it takes me a long time, maybe a decade to really combine the two, to really recognize that great financial advisors, great financial planners don't, they're not great at managing money. They're not great at, at great at, at, you know, creating investment returns. They're good at that. They have to be good at that. But what they're great at is they're great at supporting families and making better decisions. They're great at the mindfulness part. They're great at helping people realize that their brains lead them astray every day. How do we, how do we work around that? And so bringing those two things together is really what mindful money is all about. Yeah, I love that. I, uh, we could probably even do a whole nother <laughs> because philosophy, like uh, Carl Jung, Friedrich Nietzsche. Have you have you heard of Jordan Peterson? Oh heck yeah! Oh my gosh! So I'm I'm uh, I'm probably like three quarters of the way through Maps of Meaning, his first book, and like it's so funny. I I first tried with Carl Jung to um, the book. I think it's called The Psychology of the Subconscious Mind. I I went. I do like long walks every morning, like an hour and a half, two hours walk slash runs, and I listen to audiobooks and maps of meaning uh, and the psychology of the subconscious mind i realized i listened to like half of both of them and then i i, I like this was over a period of a couple of weeks and i came home uh, one day and just sat down and i realized that i did not comprehend like anything that either of them said <laughs> i was like these are not passive reads okay <laughs> and then same thing with like friedrich nietzsche like you e each sentence that that guy wrote is could be like as profound as an entire book he actually has even a quote that says that and um so either way those are books that i listen to and then i i have the physical and i read while i listen it's the only way i can like comprehend them but they're they're very like mind shattering so are, do you read a lot of those types of books uh, yes, I read. I mean, I'm, I'm looking. It's funny because I have a from grad school. I had a buddy of mine. I, I went the Tibetan Buddhist route. He went the Zen Buddhist route. Uh, okay. And, and uh, he recently said, you know, he's cleaning out his house. He found a whole bunch of books, and he was like, "Hey, Jonathan, I, I know you. I know you collect books. You know, you want these books." And he brought he brought over literally nine book boxes full of books on philosophy and Buddhist studies. And, and I got to go through it. We had, you know, we had overlaps. So it was like 50 books I ended up giving away further, but, but uh, um, I, I routinely pick up books and I, and anymore, you, you've got books, you've got podcasts, you've got, 
you know, you've got, um, you know, just tons of, there's blogs, there's just, you can get information, YouTube videos, there's Ted talk, there's just so much stuff out there. Um, but at the, at the heart, the thing that's so awesome about, um, you know, the philosophers or the psychologists is what they're really getting at. What's, what really matters is a, how, how do we experience the world? How do we process that experience and how do we develop meaning? And if, if, you, if you can understand how your brain absorbs information that comes to it, how the decision processes work around those, those, those absorbed informations, and then how you, how you make the decisions and how you can, okay, these are the decisions that lead to a meaningful life. It's actually, there's a ton of, of psychological research, philosophical history, and even you know, quasi-religious history on the true sources of happiness. And it, it's not complex. It's like, if you take care of your health, you have uh, lots of learning experiences, you, you, you maintain really good relationships, you really build opportunities for meaning. If you build some accountability, uh, if, you, if you're generous, if you're optimistic, if you are grateful, it, none of those have anything to do with money, right? None of those have anything to do. It, these are the things that make, make life worth living. Uh, and, and yet in our culture, we financialize everything. And so how do we get back? How do we, how do we remove the financialization of things and get back to the things that actually provide that life worth living and create that life worth living? Yeah, money supports a lot of those things, but how do we how do we not make that the core and the center? That becomes that becomes everything. We you know, there's so much move towards more STEM and more people doing science and more people doing math, and that's great. But I really want you know we really need to have the next generation and the generation after that understand what's important. If you don't know what's important, the the math's not going to help you. You're going to have a miserable life. Mm -hmm. So I want to, that leads into the next question I wanted to ask, but I, I want to ask this other one first real quick, just because I actually don't know the exact differences. So like a side step here, what are, what, what, are, what is the main difference between a Zen Buddhist and I think you said Tibetan? Is that yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are the main differences there? Oh, there's many. I think, I think the way to summarize that is, is okay. Zen is, Zen is really, um, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way. Zen is really simple. You sit and you stare at a wall. When you're when you start to you know uh, when your posture weakens, somebody smacks you with a stick, right? It's it's very it's very simple. Tibetan is like the Catholicism of Buddhism. There's there are so many different rituals and rites and and you know things to read and think about and ways to meditate and there's ways to you know, there's mudras and there's mantras and there's just whereas Zen is like hyper simplistic and neither of them has I would never say that one of them has a better outcome than the other. It's just a different school of thought. Um, they all have the same basic uh, canon. The, 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 they all they all begin with lessons from the Buddha, right? Yeah. Um, they, they all have their own. Um, uh, they all have their own. Uh, uh, con uh, uh, what's it called? Commentary that supports you know what the Buddha said. Uh, there's Zen commentary. There's a whole bunch of different schools of Tibetan Buddhist commentary, uh, but it's sort of yeah, I would say it's the Catholicism Buddhism with lots of different rites and rituals versus the very very simple you know, sit, experiential, stare to wall. Gotcha. Okay. Now, so, and then leading back to what uh, we were just talking about. So overall, like what does the research say about the effects of money uh, on happiness? That's a, it's a great question. I mean, the, the research is, is pretty clear and it's been, it's been repeated a couple of times. Um, it, money, money operates better as an alleviation of difficulty than it does as an enhancer of 
happiness. And what that, what that ends up meaning is once you get to that, I think that, you know, I think the study was done a few years ago. So then at that point, it was $75,000 $75, of income. Once you get to $75,000 of income, um, and obviously this is going to be different in San Francisco than in Kansas, but, but yeah. uh, once you get to that, to a baseline of income and most of your needs are met, um, the extra money isn't going to be a, an, an additive to your happiness. Um, and, and, you know, I've been, maybe it's a hundred thousand now, maybe that means, so, you know, inflation is real, like things get more, get to be more expensive. So maybe the, maybe the actual number is a little bit higher today than it was then, but it's not a million. Like the guy that has a million dollars of income isn't that much happier than the guy that has a hundred thousand dollars of income. He has more opportunities and he can provide a better education for his kids. And so there's definitely benefits to it. But in terms of my, you know, how I feel, how I report feeling about my life, it's not much better. Um, and that's, the, that's the reason is it's, it's a, again, it's better used as a way to, uh, smooth the path, you know, reduce the pain, uh, you know, reduce the anxieties than it is <clears throat> a tool to enhance our actual happiness outcomes. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I remember, I think it was even like, I think it was like eight years ago, I read some article that said exactly what you just said about like the $70,000 mark where um, it just, anything above that, the happiness level really didn't change. Um, so that's well, So there's another part to that, right? Happiness doesn't change, but there is a level of, you, they, they measure a lot. They, they measure positive outcomes different ways. So, so, contentment changes, right? Content, you can be more content in your life. You're going to be less worried about future anxieties. So there's, there's some of that, but yeah, in terms of happiness, yeah, more, more money doesn't make you happier. Gotcha. So, um, a few other things I want to touch on. So one with how, you know, we're going through a very like wild political time right now. So the media has never been more, more relevant. Um, so, uh, one of the things from the research I did and some topics that you discuss is, kind of like the, the financial illusion and how the media keeps us from our best uh, financial outcomes. So I'm just like curious, can you elaborate a little bit more on that and what you mean? Yeah, this, this, this fits right into that mindfulness, those mindfulness issues. Uh, because today, I mean, more than ever, and it, it's increased incrementally for about two decades, but more than ever, we're inundated. We are absolutely inundated with um, headlines, with fear with there's just there's just no way around this the soup that we swim in is negative 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 um and and a republican democrat that's part of the issue um we all it's really it's really more of a tribal issue we all pick our tribe and then we and then we we subscribe to newsletters and and uh, newspapers and blogs and podcasts that support our tribe or our narrative about how the world works um, and it we you know we may we may or may not actually know how the world works but this is this is what we believe and therefore this is these beliefs are what we use to judge all other narratives and it becomes this massive us them so how does that affect our finances well current scenario we can go back we can go back uh, 12 years to um, our Obama being elected and so I, I'm from South Dakota, which is, you know, leans right uh, a bit. And I'm living in Berkeley, which obviously leans left a bit. 
So I, I actually have people in both areas that have both sets of beliefs. And I remember that when Obama was elected, my people in the middle of the country thought it was the end of the world. Uh, and my people in Berkeley thought, oh, this is great. This is the best thing in the world. Um, and then when Trump was elected, my people in Berkeley thought it was the end of the world. And the people in the middle of the country thought, oh, great, this is what we needed. Um, I, think, I think maybe those folks are waking up to maybe that's not the case now, but, but does, you know, uh, maybe not. And doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't matter for what we're talking about here. It's just you, you have a set of narratives and those narratives actually suggest outcomes and those outcomes may or may not happen but it doesn't matter if we hold to the narratives. The mindfulness lets us recognize the narrative. It lets us see, okay, that's my narrative. Um, maybe that isn't a global issue. Maybe that's a, maybe that's a current issue. It's gonna have ramifications, but you know, every single day, specifically talking about markets and money, every single day, regardless of who's president, regardless of who uh, is, you know, has both houses of Congress, regardless of you know, what's going on internationally, uh, regardless of whether there's a Brexit or whether there's a European Union disaster or whether China is, you know, whether or what China is doing. People that run companies and their executive teams wake up every day and they go, okay, you know, we produce XYZ product or service. We have to find a way to produce XYZ product or service at a lower cost and we need to find a way to, to, give it, to get it to more people who want it. And, and that function doesn't change. That function is universal across every company, whether they create shoes or jeans or solar panels or provide consulting services. And it is that function that drives the economy. Actually, it kind of drives the economy whether, whether your economy is lean socialist or leans capitalist, right? That, that function matters. That function is the thing that drives it all. Now, on a global basis, broadly diversified, you know, owning companies in the U.S., internationally, emerging markets, um, it doesn't matter who's elected president. It, it literally doesn't matter. It, it's one data point among thousands that make a difference. Honestly, the Fed chair has way more power than the president does over the economy. The Fed chair is way more important um, than the president on the economy. Um, mm. And, and that's, that's one of the reasons you see the president always, Trump did it too, but always trying to, trying to you know, manage the Fed share, because that's one of the way that the president can manage the economy is, is by affecting the Fed share's decisions. So uh, the mindfulness, it happens, the arguments happen, the mindfulness is realizing how little it matters in the long term. And my, one of my favorite uncles used to say, uh, uh, Jonathan, nothing matters very much and hardly anything matters at all. And that sounds fatalistic. But in the long term, you know, the little decisions we have today, the little, the little worries and concerns we have today don't end up amounting to much. I don't remember what I was worried about 10 years ago. And I think that's the point, is these things come and they go. And the next thing that comes, it will pass as well. Yeah, no, I love that. I, I remember I was at an event like, uh, it's like eight years ago and this woman was speaking at it and she said like, one of the biggest paradoxes of life is basically that like, you know, everything matters in a sense. And at the same exact time, like nothing matters at all. Like just you as an individual, you can actually like, you know, impact things dramatically and there's a ripple effect. But at the same time, like a thousand years from now, you know, the, 
it, it, it probably would be diminished to almost nothing. <laughs> so it's like, and if you can kind of hold both sides as being true, it kind of makes, um, I feel like it kind of makes like decision-making a little bit easier. Cause it's like, it's kind of like the thing too, like take life very seriously, but also not seriously at all. Right. Uh, so I don't know. Those paradoxes are kind of fun to play with. No, I think uh, that's, that, that's awesome. I, I love that actually. I, I love that. It's, it's, it's your decisions will make a difference in your life, but they're not going to make a huge difference, you know, in the geologic time that we're part of. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious um, if you've looked into this stuff. So I read this book, uh, this is probably like five years ago or so. It's called The Creature from Jekyll Island. Have you ever heard of that book? Never have. Okay, so it's all about, it's basically, it's like this, it's pretty long, but it's about a book or it's about the Federal Reserve and how it was all started and like about the, just about money and like what it really represents and how it all works. So, you know, you hear a lot now on the news and stuff about how the U.S., at least I do from different people, about how the U.S. dollar might um, like crash. Like what's, what's your take on that? And is it kind of still kind of go back to the fundamentals of diversifying? That is, that's a great question. So just, just to, before Bitcoin ever existed, this discussion was going on. And before Bitcoin, before cryptocurrency, it was, it was the, um, the tool that one used to, uh, you know, hedge against a, not, not just a crashing dollar, but, you know, a dollar that is losing its global hegemony. Um, the tool was gold. So let's, you know, we go back to, to the eight, to the early eighties and gold is just now, just now hitting those same values again. Right. So this is, what is that? 40 years. Um, whereas the stock market or just a blend of a blend of equities globally has up, you know, a hundred X in that time. So it's, I, I understand the, uh, the concern about the, the dollar strength, but there's two really, really important things here. Um, the first thing is what is the other option? What is the other global reserve currency that one could point to that has a track record that is reliable, relatively consistent, relatively well-managed? There, there isn't one. There, there, there is no other global currency that, that has the respect that the dollar has. Meanwhile, um, yes, there's an expe expectation of a long trend global decline of the dollar value. And that's, that I've heard that for, a, and, and it, that, that, you know, that's, that's important to realize, like, you know, this, the inflation is real. That's the target of the Fed. The goal is a 2% long-term annualized decline of the dollar. That's what inflation is, is reducing the value of the currency you have year over year over year. The idea of a shock, the idea of, you know, China selling all their, all their debt, that hurts China more than it hurts us. Like that's, hmm. it's kind of, it's kind of silly to be worried about it, but it doesn't mean, you know, we're not going to worry about it. So what do I use? And I, and I've, I've gone deep into the Bitcoin world myself into cryptocurrency and trying to understand it, think about it. Uh, and for me, it's a speculation. It, it's probably a fantastic speculative tool, but if you look at what actually produces value long-term, it's a bet on human productivity and innovation. That's what companies do. 
That's what owning that broadly diversified basket of equities does. Um, and for my money, I, I invest as a hedge against that, that domestic and global inflation. I invest with, uh, as a hedge against those things with companies. That's where I put money as the best tool because dividends go up every year across the board with dips here and there through time because of the recessions and things, but dividends actually outpace inflation. So, you know, forget about the value increase of the companies themselves. That's a nice additive, but really what we want is income. Really what we want to have is, a, is an income that grows to match our rising cost of living. That's what dividends do. Dividends do that better than any fixed income instrument. They do that historically better than any kind of commodity like gold or silver. They do it better. You know, we don't have a long-term track record, but so far they do it better than, than the cryptocurrencies. Um, uh, it's, it's steadier. It's more reliable. It's more diversifiable. It's, it's, uh, so that's the way I do it. That's the way I, I manage that risk. I, it's a real risk. It is probably the real risk. Inflation is probably way more important of a real risk than, you know, market collapse, right? It, yeah. it, markets are resilient. Markets collapse and recover all the time. But inflation, that's real. So how do you plan against that? I think you own more equities. Gotcha. Okay. Now this will show you how the kind of new I am to this side of like the stock market does do index funds provide dividends or do you have to like invest directly into one company for that? No, you get the, you get the dividend. I mean, the way the index, all the index is, is just use the S and P 500 is just, you know, you, you buy some S and P, you buy the S and P 500, you know, ETF or a, or a index fund of sorts. And then somebody goes out there and creates something that's supposed to act like that index. Like you can't actually buy the index. That's not for sale. So okay. a manager has to create the index for you. And so that you're not going to own, there's 505 companies in the SP 500. If you own the SP 5 index, you know, managed by iShares, uh, it's going to be a different, different subset of companies than the one managed by say American funds, right? It's going to have a different fee structure. It's going to have a different but all the dividends of all those companies will flow through to you as the owner, whether it's whether you own shares of mutual fund or shares of the ETF, all those dividends flow through to you. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I, um, I just putting it, I went with Vanguard cause that's what that book said to do. <laughs> so I just did Vanguard, but um, okay. That makes sense. And it's kind of like a collective. Um, <laughs> Cool. Okay. I feel, I feel good. I, I feel the one thing that kind of put me at ease, it was what you just said about the big, cause it, I don't know if like it's a marketing tactic or something, but there are a lot of big financial people out there right now. And they're like, the dollar's going to go to zero. Like the, and it's like, you know, when you just don't know this, uh, when you're not as financial literate as somebody like yourself, it, it's kind of like this, this thing that you kind of just like bury in the back of your head, but it's like still kind of there. And you're like wondering like, should I like, is, is the dollar going to be worth nothing tomorrow? <laughs> so, either way, you kind of put me at ease there. So I Tyler, if you, if you look at, if you look at a 50 year history of the dollar yeah and look at what things cost 50 years ago so i don't i don't think that they're this is gonna be weird to say i don't think that they're wrong i think the dollar is going to lose 97 percent of its value but it's going to take another it's going to take 100 years and the yeah. question is on a relative basis what what else could you do well you could own the euro you could own the yen you could own the yuan you could own you could you could own lots of different currencies but they're they're going through the same thing like the, yeah the inflation issue affects all of us. In fact, it's kind of a competition, right? When you think about global economics, the if you if we can drive the value of our dollar down, then our goods are cheaper 
to other to people in other countries. And if you if you say, okay, let's put this into context. If uh, if China is our main global competitor, I'm not saying that they are, but if they are, and they have the largest market, having a having a dollar that declines in value is really good for our companies that are exporting to China, right? That's a that makes our goods our services cheaper than those produced. In China, just based on just based on a currency level, um, yeah. and so the more we do that, that's actually good for our businesses. Is it good for is it good for us as um, as uh, citizens of the United States? Less good if our dollar goes down in value and we want to travel to these places. It's more expensive for us to travel because our dollar buys less. But we're all in this. There's this global competition to reduce the value of everyone's currencies, and you know then we. We, we, we say, oh, China's doing it and we're not doing it. And then China says, no, 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 you're doing it. And we're not doing it. And there's this big argument, but you know, underlying we're all declining. The currencies values of all of these uh, places are declining. And it's the real, the real thing we have to do is how do we, what do we do with our money to protect us, protect ourselves from that, you know, inevitability. And that's where I go back to, well, fixed income is not going to do it, especially now. Um, and, Equities, that's an investment in productivity and innovation. That makes a lot of sense to me. Like that's when you're producing something new, innovation, or you're, you're finding uh, innovative ways to produce more of things at lower prices, that's, you, you capture that benefit as an equity holder, as an owner. You also unfortunately get all the zigs and zags, all right? But if you ignore the zigs and zags, those fundamental drivers don't change. Mm. Awesome. Well, listen, man, I, I appreciate you coming on. This was, uh, this was an awesome interview. I'll, I'll let, if there's anything we missed that you want to talk about, feel free to share it. And then uh, lastly, too, just, you know, name of the book, your website, and everywhere people can find you. Great. So thanks, Tyler. It was actually great to be on. Uh, this, it's, it's a little different than most conversations I have. We went really into the, into the nuts and bolts, and I really appreciate that. That was fun. So the book is, uh, is Mindful Money, Simple Practices for Reaching Your Financial Goals and uh, increasing your happiness dividend. Uh, the point of the book is is basically that uh, you can't really set wealth or happiness as a goal. Both wealth and happiness are things that ensue from a life well lived. Uh, and so the book has three sections. The first section is really about those illusions. These are the things you can ignore. The second section is about the true sources of meaning and happiness and contentment in our lives. And these are the things you focus on and base a financial plan on. And the third section is basically how you write that financial plan. So we have, uh, we have a, a course launching in December that is based on the exercises in the book. So the really cheap way to really do all those exercises is to get the book. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon, right? You can get it on Amazon, get it at a local bookstore, and really inexpensive. The course is gonna be $1,000, $1,500, but we're gonna walk you through it step-by-step. Uh, and then, you know, my company is Mindful Money. Um, it's mindful.money. Uh, so please visit us there. Sign up for a newsletter. We do a ton of educational stuff. We advocate planning every, every second of every day. I think it actually is the, is the driver of our financial success. And when you go to mindful.money, you can see all of our social media. Love to, love to see on social media. If you've got questions, you know, ask us. We're happy to answer them. Perfect, man. Thank you again for coming on. All right. Thanks, Tyler. Unite show is sponsored by AuthorsUnite.com, your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact. 